Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Adam. I'm just one of the guys on staff here at Bridgewater, specifically the Tunkhannock campus. And I've been here at Bridgewater and living in Pennsylvania for about a year now. Originally, I'm from New York, near the Buffalo area. But even in the whole time that I've been living in Pennsylvania, I still haven't transferred all my New York information over to Pennsylvania. So if you looked at my car, you would see that I still have a New York license plate. But I'm working on it. At the beginning of the summer, I went through the process of getting a Pennsylvania driver's license, which just, it really involves a lot of paperwork. And I don't know about you guys, but I dread paperwork. You with me? Like, I'm pretty sure there's going to be no paperwork in heaven. My whole goal with this process was to just get it done and over with as quickly as possible. And so I started the process of doing the paperwork online because I wanted to come in with all that paperwork and just get in and get out of the driver's license center as quick as I could. But when I arrived, it was pointed out to me that I had insufficient documentation, that somehow I missed that I needed to have two letters that confirmed my place of residence. So... I hopped in my car, and I drove to the Bridgewater office building, picked up two pieces of paper that had my name and my address on it, and then I drove back to the driver's license center. This time, I had faith that I would get it right. And so I showed them the paperwork that I had. They took a look at it, and then they told me that my documentation was still insufficient, that it couldn't come from the same place. I need to have two different sources. So, completely insufficient, I was back to where I was before, so I hopped into my car, drove all the way back home, and then just rummaged around my trash cans, trying to find some mail that I had thrown away before. And so it took not just one try, not just two tries, it took me three tries to get it right and to get my Pennsylvania driver's license. Now, it's one thing for us to have insufficient documentation for something like a driver's license, but it is so important for us to have sufficient faith for eternal life. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be answering the question, what is saving faith? And before we get to the answer of what saving faith is, I first want to talk about what saving faith is not. So if you would like to follow along with me, you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 23. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. We'll also have it up on the screens for you to follow along. And the passage that we're about to look at, it gives us a window into Jesus' ministry when he was here on earth. John chapter 2, verse 23. It says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is our first example of insufficient faith. 
You see, from the outside, these, pro- these people probably looked like they were following Jesus. It said that they believed in his name. They saw the signs and the miracles that Jesus was doing, and they're like, yeah, he can't just be any normal human being. He's got to be from heaven. But Jesus could see into their hearts. He could read them like a book, and he saw that their faith was really surface level and insufficient. The way I like to think about this is, how do you get an animal to be your best friend? I think all you got to do is give it a treat. When I was growing up, my parents raised chickens. And for me, chickens were just functional animals. Like, this is probably the only way we could keep up with the number of eggs that I would eat every morning. So we just, we raised these chickens, we let them do their own thing, we take care of them. But for some of my cousins, on both sides of my family, actually, our chickens were more than just functional animals. They were like pets. And so they would feed our chickens scraps of food, and then the chickens would follow them wherever they went. So they'd give wagon rides to these chickens. They would cradle these chickens in their arms up close to their face, and they'd be like, "Ah, see, look, it loves me. And I, I would look at that and be like, If you could just see into the heart of that chicken, you know that animal does not love you. It's just nuzzled up with you because you feed it scraps of food and you're giving it all of this attention. And in the same way, Jesus can see into the hearts of these people. He sees that they're just following him around because Jesus is putting on a show of miracles and they're just really along for the ride. And this is the first example of insufficient faith. And now we see this played out in a specific person's life. We're going to go to chapter 3 now and read about a man named Nicodemus. In verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus is probably the most religious person that you could ever think of. It says that he was a Pharisee. And back in the day, the Pharisees were a group of people who not only kept God's commandments, but they had rules on top of rules to make sure that they didn't break God's commandments. Like, let, Let me give you an example God's commandment was for the whole nation of Israel to observe the Sabbath day as a day of rest, and they weren't allowed to work. And so the Pharisees had some extra rules on top of that. Their rule was, you're not allowed to look into a mirror. Because if you looked into a mirror, you might see that you have a gray hair. And if you see that you have a gray hair, you might pull it out. And that's considered work by their standards. So... I would have a whole head of gray hairs if I was a Pharisee trying to keep up with all of these rules. And Nicodemus, he isn't just a Pharisee, but it says that he was on the Jewish ruling council. And so this man is a teacher of teachers. And I'm sure if anybody thought that they were getting into heaven, it would be Nicodemus. He'd even taught other people how to get into heaven and how to have eternal life. But in his conversation with Jesus, Jesus revealed to him that his faith in religion 
was a superficial faith. And so, my concern is that there are so many people who are just like Nicodemus, who have an insufficient faith. They think that they're on the right track, when the, re- the reality is that's not true. In 2011, the Barna Research Group did a study, and it showed that 50% of Americans believe that they are headed to heaven because they professed a faith in Jesus and prayed what we would call the sinner's prayer. Now that sounds like great news, but here's what's really concerning, is that of that 50%, one half of them don't have any connection whatsoever to a church. And additionally, one half of them don't even believe that the Bible is right and what it teaches. Like these people don't believe the Bible is true, and so then they're looking to other things of the world, other sources as their basis for truth. And two-thirds of that 50% don't live a lifestyle that's any different than the rest of the world. They don't even have a worldview that is shaped by the life-changing truth of Jesus. They're just fitting right in. And some people can look at those statistics and say, see, I knew it. Christians are hypocrites. But what I read in those statistics is that there's a lot of people who think that they have a faith that is sufficient for eternal life when they really don't. So what is saving faith? And we're going to look at two marks of saving faith this morning. The first is a new birth. Follow along with me to verse 3, and this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. It says, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. Jesus is saying that no one can enter the kingdom of God or nobody can get to heaven unless they are first born again. And I know that this is a really hard idea to wrap your minds around. Even Nicodemus was having trouble tracking with with what Jesus was saying here. So here's the idea. We all have our physical birth, where we're born into our family. And Jesus is saying that in order to get into heaven, you have to have a spiritual birth, to become a child of God and to become part of God's spiritual family. But here's the tricky part. How many of you chose your birth? I didn't choose it. And so it's the same way here with this picture of becoming part of God's family. You see, We could never choose God apart from God's work in our own hearts. And that's because we have such a severe sin problem. It says in Romans 3, chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 10, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, and there is no one who seeks after God. Because of this severe sin problem, None of us could ever seek after God in our own initiative. 
And so to be born again, it took the initiative of God to choose us and to seek after us. So now maybe you're wondering, all right, well, if I can't choose this new birth, like how do I even know if I have it? I think one way you can know that you've been born again is if you see the message of salvation in a new light. How many of you ever got a new car or a new to you car? And I think that's a pretty common experience. When you get this new vehicle and you're out driving, you start to see that same model of car all over the place, all over the road. And it's not that that model car wasn't on the road before, but it took you having a personal experience with that model vehicle before you would see it everywhere else. And once you had that vehicle, it's like the lights turned on. And I think it can be the same way where you can hear the message of salvation over and over again, but it doesn't click until you are born again and it's like the lights are turned on. Or another way that you could know that you are born again is if you feel the conviction to live out what the Bible actually says. I think just about anyone can pick up the Bible and read it, and understand grammatically the information of the Bible. But to them, it's no more than just words on a page. But if you are born again, it's so much more than just words on a page. It's so much more than just information. It's the word of life. It's a window into the heart of God, and you want to live it out because you see that God's ways are best. Nicodemus, he wasn't born again. He hadn't experienced this, and the lights hadn't turned on for him. And so he was still struggling to wrap his mind around this. And so Jesus went on to explain to Nicodemus what a saving faith is. And the second mark of saving faith is a new life. And let's go to verse 14 now. John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus continues to explain, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Well, now Jesus is talking about an event in Israel's history that, that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. You see, back in the day, God raised up a man named Moses to deliver the nation of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. But they went from, like, one bad situation to another. They went from slavery to wandering around in the wilderness. And the Israelites didn't have a very good attitude about this. And so they started talking bad about Moses. They started talking bad about God. They're like, why have you brought us out of Egypt just to let us die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. And because of their attitudes and because of the way they were speaking out against God and against Moses, God sent these venomous snakes into their camp as judgment. And it took the death of so many of the Israelites before they realized that they were in sin in their attitude and the way they were talking about God. And so they called out to God and asked him for mercy. And in his mercy, God provided a solution and we can read about this in Numbers chapter 21. And I'll turn there. This is the solution. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake 
and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Earlier on in the summer, I went on a backpacking trip on the Appalachian Trail. And it was just a short section that went from Pennsylvania to Maine. And when I was on that trip, I went down to a stream to filter some water. And as I was focused on my water bottles, I heard a girl next to me just cry out, Oh my gosh, what is that? I looked up and I saw the biggest rattlesnake I've ever seen in my entire life. It's actually the only rattlesnake I've ever seen in my entire life. But there it was right in front of me. And so I did what any normal person would do. I grabbed my phone and got as close to it as I could. I grabbed a video of it. So here's a quick clip of that video. So there it is. That snake was probably this big, but when I show that video to people, they're like, wow, that snake must have been this big. So every time I tell the story now, it just gets bigger and bigger. I'm like, the snake was like this big. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites here. Like, what if you had gotten bitten by one of these venomous snakes or something like a rattlesnake? What would be your, your go-to response? I don't know about you but I'd try to treat my injury. I'd be like, somebody get me an ice pack. Or I've heard of guys who can just like suck the venom out of the wound and spit it out. Like I'd probably give that a try. I would, I would do everything in my own strength to try to save myself. But the harsh reality is it's an insufficient solution and I'd probably end up dying. The only solution would be to do things God's way and to look at this bronze snake, as silly as it seems to just look at an image for healing. But that's the only way to live. And so forget the ice pack. Don't spend any time looking for Tylenol. Like just make a beeline for this bronze snake to look at it and live. And Jesus is a picture of that as well. You see, God chose to use that bronze snake up on a pole as a symbol of the Israelites' sin. And he put it up there as a solution to their sin. Jesus is the solution to our sin problem. As he was raised up on the cross, he took upon himself sin and death that we deserve to pay. It says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, we're all in a life or death situation here. And it's not just between physical death and physical life, but it's between eternal destruction and eternal life. And in a sense, we've all been bitten by these venomous snakes We're all infected with a sin problem. And I don't think that anybody can deny that our world is suffering from a severe sin problem. 
You can't deny the problem. But the real question is, what are you looking to for the solution? Maybe you think, as long as I'm a good person and my good deeds outweigh all the bad things that I do, then that's the solution. I can still have eternal life. Or maybe you think, as long as I believe that God exists, as long as I believe that Jesus is a real person, and I go to church on occasion and do some of the Christian things, then that's the solution. Or maybe you're like Nicodemus, and your faith is in your religion. As long as you can check the right religious boxes, as long as you can go through the right motions, you think that you're on the right track. And all of these things might seem like legitimate solutions, but really, it's no better to treat the real problem than it would be to put an ice pack on a snake bite. Faith in Jesus is the only way to eternal life. And I've asked the band to come up here to play a song that just gives us a picture of everything that Jesus did on the cross so that we could experience eternal life. started with, what is saving faith? And I've just said that the only way to eternal life is through faith in Jesus. But maybe not all of the dots have been connected just yet. And so I want to take a moment to just share the fuller picture of God's plan for salvation. It is called the gospel. It's the good news of salvation. Now some of you At this point, you might think, you know what, I've heard the gospel dozens of times. I already know this stuff, and that's great, but please don't check out. Maybe if you know the gospel already, think about how you would share it with somebody else. If somebody asked you, what does it take to be saved? What is saving faith? Would you be able to give them an answer? And so let's walk through the message of of salvation through the lens of who God is. God is perfect. It says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe you compare yourself to other people. You think, well, I'm not as bad as they are, or I don't sin in the ways that they sin. You know what? Overall, I'm a pretty good person. And I think by most standards, you probably are a really good person. But God's standard is perfection. And there is no way that we can meet that standard of perfection on our own. I have missed that standard trillions and trillions of times in my life. Without God's power, there's none of us who can make it. It's like trying to dunk on a 20-foot basketball hoop. Like, it's just not happening. So maybe you think, if God is, well, God then why can't he just let everybody into heaven? Like, why does sin have to be such a big deal? I think that's a great question. And the answer to that is God is also just. It says, for the wages of sin is death, or the penalty of sin is death. And it says elsewhere in scripture that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sins. There's a penalty for death And it is the death penalty. And God can't just turn a blind eye to that and give it a free pass. I think about it like this. What if somebody 
broke into your house and just totally ransacked the place. Then they stole everything that was of value. Now fast forward a little bit, and you're there in court, and the person who had committed this offense is there, and it's so obvious that they are guilty. But then the judge says, you know what? They're guilty, but three years in prison, that's a harsh penalty. We'll give you a free pass on that. In fact, even keep everything that you stole. Now, as the one whose house was broken into, how would that make you feel? Probably not very good. Why? Because it's not just. Because God is a God of justice. He can't just let sin go unexcused or excused. But the the problem that leaves us is we all have the death penalty hanging over our heads. That is the bad news. But the good news is that God is also loving. And we read about this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And it says in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were still sinners, while we still had this death penalty hanging over our heads, Christ died for us. And since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Because of his love, Jesus gave up his rightful place in heaven and all the glory that he deserves to come to earth as a man, to serve other men, to bleed and to sweat and to live the perfect life that we could never live so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. If there's anyone who doesn't deserve to pay the penalty for sin, it was Jesus But as he hung up there on the cross, he took upon himself the penalty of our sin. He took upon himself the wrath of God and the weight of death. You see, Jesus gave us what we needed the most when we deserved it the least at great personal cost. Jesus did that for you. And if Jesus stayed in the grave, and we would all be in big trouble. But the good news is that God is powerful. After Jesus died, he was in the grave for three days, and after that, he arose again and showed himself to the disciples and to other people. He showed himself to 500 people after he had been raised to life. And that just proves that God is stronger than death. He is stronger than sin. And because we have the hope that God Because God was able to raise Jesus to life, we can have the hope that when we die, that God can also raise us up to eternal life. God is powerful. And God is also forgiving. When Jesus was up there on the cross, he took care of our sin problem. Because of the spilling of his blood, if anyone has faith in Jesus, they can have eternal life. So if you believe that Jesus really is the Son of God, if you believe that you really, have, really do have a sin problem, but that what Jesus did on the cross was enough to take care of that sin problem, that is saving faith. That's what we've been talking about this morning. 
And if you've experienced that, if you've experienced the fullness of God's forgiveness, there is no sin that's too big or too bad to keep you from a relationship with God. If you've experienced God's forgiveness, when he looks at you, he doesn't just see your sin, he doesn't just see your brokenness and your mistakes, but he sees that it's been covered by Jesus and that you have this new life as a child of God. So we've made it. We've finally answered the question, what is saving faith? But I think the next important question that hinges on that is, do you have the marks of saving faith? Have you been born again? Do you have this new identity as a child of God and have the lights turned on? Do you understand the message of salvation and everything that Jesus did for you on the cross? And have you experienced eternal life through Jesus? Do you believe on him for this new life? And I'm not going to lie to you. Following Jesus is not an easy road. And just believing and having faith in Jesus is one piece of the puzzle. And the other piece of the puzzle is putting that into action. You see, Jesus doesn't want you to just think right beliefs about him. He wants you to follow him. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You see, following Jesus, it's not easy, but there is nothing better. And in the end, it's the way that leads to eternal life. If you've made that decision this morning, then I couldn't be more excited for you. I've been praying about this all week long. I know so many others have as well. There is nothing better than following Jesus. And if you maybe have some questions about what it means to be saved, or maybe you're just on the fence, we have some people in the back who are wearing those bright orange t-shirts. They care about you. They would love to answer any questions that you would have about salvation. And if you have made that decision this morning, then I just want to encourage you to take one of these cards and to just put your name and contact info on there to check on the back that you're interested in salvation and take that out to the welcome desk. We'd love to set you up for success, to give you a Bible, a devotion book, and any other helpful resources. And this is something we want to know about because you're not in this alone. We want to be able to celebrate what God is doing in your life. The Bible even says that when somebody comes to faith in Jesus, that there's a party going on in heaven. And so that's why we celebrate life change the way we do here at Bridgewater. And if you're also interested in getting more connected, you could also get involved in a small group and answer some of those questions about the faith. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the love that you showed us that we don't deserve. Father, we, we deserve a death penalty, um, an eternal destruction. We could never even choose to follow after you because of our sin problem. But I'm so thankful that you are a God of forgiveness, that you are a God of love, and that you made a way so that we can have a relationship with you. And God, I ask that we would remind ourselves of that each and every day. And 
I ask that it would impact how we go about our lives. I ask that we would always be ready to share the gospel of salvation to anyone who might ask, and even those who don't ask. I ask that we would be a light in their lives and share the message of truth. And Father, I'm so thankful for everyone who is here this morning, and I really do believe that you're working in hearts. I ask that you would give us soft hearts to take whatever next step you've called us to take, and that we would continue uh, to be a church that's all about serving you and seeing you change lives. And I thank you for the privilege that it is to be a part of that. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So glad you chose to spend your Sunday with us this morning, and I hope you'll stay for everything we have next. As you leave, please take a chair with you if you'd like to stay. I'll see you later.